Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Sugarcoated Murder is proud to be a part of The Oracle Network. Welcome to Sugarcoated Murder Podcast, a brilliant true crime podcast hosted by two zany sisters, all while baking up delicious treats in their kitchen. Here are your podcast hosts, Karen Devaney and Ann Varner. You did. Really rough bourbon. Yeah, it's a strong one. It happens one. to be 100 proof. Yes. It's a, it's a rough one. It's, well, a, it's good, but it's rough. It, it it really burns a path all the way down. Yes, cleans right out. Cleans you right any, out. Any yeah. sort of bacteria that you might have had, yeah, go to I bath. I was using it in the recipe that I am currently working on, so I did. it was just a little bit left. I didn't want it to go to waste. Yes, it's called Reservoir. 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 Voila. Voila. It's French. It's a French reservoir. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Karen is currently in the kitchen mm. making uh. beautiful things happen. It yes. smells so flipping good already. Yes, yes. So we went to visit Farmer Katie we for did. the goat races. I haven't put that video up yet, but I will get it up eventually to somewhere. It might be on Patreon. I don't know where it's going. Anyway, when we were there, Farmer Katie gave us some nanners. She did. From her nanner tree. She sure and they're did. special nanners. They're yes. Su- they're supposed to taste like some vanilla ice cream. Right. So she gave us a bag of them, and I thought, what can I use with these bananas? Right. To make. And then I found this recipe for banana bourbon cake. And Hello. when you say bourbon, Hello. I say, okay. Hello, <laughs> banana bourbon cake. So I'm doing today a banana bourbon cake with a caramel cream cheese icing. Holy manoli. Yes, and it's, it hails from a website called thegndmkitchen.com. Nice, very good. Yes. So this cake recipe is pretty simple. It's I thought it was going to be a lot of steps. It seems like a lot of steps when you read it, but right. you mash up your nanners, you mix some buttermilk and some bourbon. How could I forget? <laughs> That's where the bourbon was supposed to go. No, the, the bourbon did go in there and then it went down my throat. So you mash that up and mix mix the bourbon and the buttermilk. Set that aside. You start your butter and your two sugars and you beat them for eight minutes until they're really soft and fluffy. While that's happening, you mix almond flour, all-purpose flour, your regular trio, salt, baking soda, baking powder, and cinnamon. Mm. And then you mix that. And then you just start with your wet ingredients. You go wet, dry, wet, dry, a third at a time. Mm-hmm. Till, and then you just wait till it's mixed up. And this batter is very fluffy. <gasps> oh, I love a fluffy batter. Yes. Yeah. So 
then I'm just going to put it in two cake pans and bake these suckers, and then I'll be... And then the real fun begins with that's the cream the cheese caramel icing that's also got bourbon in it. It has a little bourbon in it as well. Yay! I know. <laughs> I love this recipe. Oh, my gosh. I don't know who these M&G people are or G&M or love whoever them. owns this kitchen. I love you. Brilliant. <laughs> Y'all are brilliant. Y'all look so brilliant. So brilliant. And they might be our people. They might just be our people. <laughs> yes. So that's what I'm doing. So in the meantime, what shall you be doing? I just want to say one thing really quick. Okay. Daniel Robinson, still missing. Still missing. We've had some we've had some good recovery stories this week. We've had a couple of kids that were found that were missing and in danger. So that's been nice. There was a one-year-old that was stolen with his parents' vehicle. Mm. And the vehicle was later found in no one-year-old oh gosh that one-year-old was spotted in somebody else's car in a driveway the police were called they went and got the baby the baby seems to be fine oh that's great news yeah and then there was a 13 year old girl who seemingly was kidnapped out of i think she was in new york new jersey or new jersey yeah and then they found her 23 yeah. days later they found her in florida wow so that's kind of been you know, some good news, but Daniel Robinson still missing. Still missing. They continue to search every yeah, Saturday. You yes. can volunteer and go out there and search. You can pay some money to his GoFundMe page. There was even a little news blurb on our local news here about it, which I was Finally. very happy to see. Finally, yeah. So hopefully they're showing lots of stuff in Arizona I and so. just trying to keep it alive. And the uh, you know surrounding states. I don't know what states surround Arizona. Um, it might be Hawaii and, <laughs> and Guam and Puerto Rico. I don't know. But anyway, okay. whatever those states are, I hope that they're all showing stuff. So anyway, now it's on to you. On to me. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of pressure. I know, girl. I am going to tell a murder from our hometown because we have so many to tell. I'm really tired of telling them. And I'm hoping <laughs> that this is, well, it's not the last. No. <laughs> what I have to say today, but I'm hoping... Is really close to I hope we're getting to the end of them, but I don't think so. Oh, come on. I don't think so. Come on, hometown. I know. You've got to do better. Let's get it together. But these are older ones. Yeah, this one dates back all the way to 1978. So I was was a wee wee tot. You were a wee. You were like nine, maybe? I was nine, but I remember. I remember very vividly when this happened. Mm -hmm. I do, too. Very vivid. Yeah. I'll just get started on the story. Let's just go for it. All right. On July 12th, 1978. At half past 11 in the morning, a man walked into Smith Jewelers in Franklin, Virginia. Inside the store was the owner, Jack Smith, an employee, Mary Huffman, and a customer, which I didn't know about until I started doing this research. I didn't realize there was a customer in the store. His name, he was 18 years old, and his his name is Shelton Smith. The man, Willie Turner, had a sawed-off shotgun hidden in a pillowcase. He was there to... Rob the store. In the broad daylight. In broad daylight. Walking around with a pillowcase. Right. Not very creative, but go on. And um, Willie Turner is a native, is a Franklin native. He he grew up in Franklin, so he's from that area. So he knew. He knew where to he go. Knew he was ro- who he was robbing. So Mr. Smith began stuffing money into jewelry bags. About this time, another customer entered the store. Her name is Judy Cosby. Her husband was the high school football coach at the time. So, so she just walked into, you know, to the store, like, on a day and to do her thing. And yeah, 
she comes in and now Willie Turner feels like there are a lot of people in the store. I need y'all, all, all y'all need to get behind the counter because I need to be able to see everyone. Meantime, Mr. Smith continues to put um, money and jewelry in the bags. And while he's doing it, he pushes a silent alarm, which is something that he had installed because in, he was robbed back in 1973. So after that robbery, he was like, you know what? I think I'm going to put a silent alarm in here in case this happens again. I don't blame me. Immediately, Officer Alan Bain received the alarm call while he was close by in his squad car. Officer Bain drove to the jewelry store. Now, Franklin wasn't a high crime kind of town back in 1978. I can only guess that when the alarm call came through that Officer Bain probably thought that the alarm had been triggered by accident. Okay. That's speculation. I cannot think of any other reason that he would have... Wait, I'm going to taste the batter. <laughs> oh, so good. Holy smokes. It's so good. Wow. That is insanely good. Yeah, it is insanely good and very light. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited yeah, about this Please cake. excuse me. I just need to put a little bit of warm water in this bowl because I know I'll be using it in a minute. Please, Aunt Janie, forgive oh, me. Oh, actually, so I have another bowl, so you don't oh. even have to clean that one out. You can just swap bowls. Girl, stop it. Yes, like we're a high, high, dollar, high dollar kitchen right up in here. Okay. All right, so back what I was saying is I can only guess that he thought maybe it was a mistake. I can't think of any other reason that he would have walked into a store Sorry. where there was a silent alarm going off. Right. And he would have walked in and said, hey, your silent alarm is on. Is everything Not okay? Not the smartest thing in the world, but we're talking about a small town. It's in the middle of the day. Yeah. I mean, I'm just saying, he probably was like, oh, Jack's alarm is going off. Let me just go tell him. Right. And I, I mean, I can remember Danny's. At Tart Pharmacy, there were times when the alarm malfunctioned. Yeah, they and they were calling. They were calling right, or we'd be in the store and we wouldn't hear it, but they'd be calling from the police station yeah. saying, "Hey, your alarm's going off." Is everything okay? Right. All right, please hold. Okay. Oh my. I'm sorry, Aunt Janie, but I have to get the bubbles out. Well, my knee just decided it's not. Oh work Lord, right have mercy! The bourbon just hit your <laughs> hit your hollow it, leg. It really just hit my knee <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> got a limp. <laughs> I'm real gimpy now. I don't know what happened. I don't either. Oh my goodness. <laughs> my heavens. All right. So he comes in. He says, hey, your silent alarm is on. Is everything okay? Well, Willie Turner aims his sawed-off shotgun right at Officer Bain, and he approached him. Officer Bain, of course, you know, puts his hands up, and Willie Turner takes his service weapon, his pistol, from Officer Bain's belt. And then he tells Mr. Smith, he asked Mr. Smith, is that alarm still on? And Mr. Smith shook his head yes. And okay. Willie Turner said, turn it off. About that time, the phone rang. Turner moved to customer, the customer, Judy Cosby. And he held the gun to her head, actually had it in her ear, oh, and God. told her to answer the phone. Oh, and Judy didn't work there, you know. Yeah, so she, somebody's calling expecting to hear Jack Smith. Right. and Or Mary Huffman, you know. Yeah. So Judy answers the phone and takes the message without alerting the caller as to the nightmare she's living. Okay. After she hung up, Turner decided to shoot Officer Bain's pistol toward the back of the store, which is the dumbest thing. That He just wanted to 
to see how it fired, I guess. I don't know. Or wanted to. I, I think don't he's even just trying. He's just showing off. Right. Well, listen, Smith Jewelers sits on a busy street in Franklin. There's a lot of foot traffic in the area. There's yeah. a lot of hustle and bustle, you know, and during the day. And there are a lot day. of during the day and or even at night. And there are offices on either side. Yeah. They're, it's not like he's a standalone business out in a remote area. He's yeah. in the heart of, of downtown Franklin when downtown Franklin was thriving. Bustling. Luckily, there were two off-duty police officers in town from Richmond, Virginia. Oh. And they heard the shot. Bless and they heart. happened to see Officer Bain's patrol car in front of the jewelry store. So they used the radio in his patrol car and called in a shots fired call to the police station. Okay. Very smart. Yeah. Very smart to do that. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in the store, Mr. Smith is continuing to fill the bags with jewelry. At this point, Willie walks over to Jack Smith and without warning, without a word, without anything, he raises the gun and shoots him right in the head. Hits him in the upper scalp area. So it did, it did not kill him. Right. But he did hit the counter and then fall to the floor. Mm-hmm. The witnesses inside said they could hear him breathing, but it was a gurgled breath. But he was breathing Okay. on the floor, but breathing. According to testimony, mm-hmm. Officer Bain started to talk to Willie, telling him, Listen, you don't need to do this. I will take you anywhere you want to go. Mm-hmm. Nobody will stop me. I'm a police officer. Yeah. I'll, I will help you carry these bags out. I will take you wherever you want to go. Let's just end this. And Willie said, I'm going to make this person pay. Did he say it cost He did. He used a very bad racist word. Oh, he did? He did. And um, that's a very interesting thing that he said in that conversation that will come to play later. In the commotion that's happening at this point, Mary Huffman and the young customer managed to escape out the front door. And actually, there were police outside trying to figure out what to do. And they thought that Smith was the robber. Oh, no. So they handcuffed him and put him in a patrol car. Well. Yes. Okay. But they they let her they figured out that that was the case. Anyway, once Willie Turner said, "I'm going to make him pay for turning that alarm on." He reached over the counter and fired Officer Bain's pistol two times into Jack Smith's chest. The first one made Mr. Smith's body jump. The second one no movement after that. He was dead. About this time, Willie starts to walk to the back of the store. Officer Bain ta- is able to tackle him from behind. Uh-huh. And get both guns away from him. Okay. Able at that point, police rush in. Mm-hmm. Other police officers that were in there were trying to figure out what the heck to do. They rush in and they call. Then ambulance is on standby, so the the EMS workers come in and they get Mr. Smith and rush him to the hospital. And there's only one hospital in Franklin. Yes, it is. At the time, a great hospital. And Mr. Smith's wife Betty happened to be the head nurse at that hospital. Yep. His son, Billy, was 18. He had just graduated high school, and he was working as a groundskeeper cutting the grass at the hospital. So Betty and Billy were both at the hospital when the ambulance pulled up. Betty was in a meeting, but Billy saw the ambulance pull up and saw somebody pull out a body with a sheet over it, which meant whoever that was, he was dead. But at the time, he didn't know it was his dad? He did not. Okay. Mm -mm. But Jack Smith was pronounced dead on arrival. Yeah. Willie Turner was arrested and charged with capital murder. 
In December of 1979, a jury convicted him and sentenced him to die. After multiple appeals, and I mean multiple appeals, he was originally scheduled to die in 1981, but he was still going through the appeals process. The biggest fight that he fought was that he wanted, when the jury was selected, he wanted the judge to ask them specifically a question about racial bias. The judge, however, did not ask that question, but asked, is there any reason that you couldn't reach a verdict in this case? Okay. Willie Turner said he didn't say it's a black man that killed a white man and that the jury could be prejudiced against him. As, a, as an African-American, which is an interesting thing because he used such a pr- yeah, terrible I mean, how, word. How the tables have turned. Right. Now, you know, when, when your life is in the balance, you decide that this is racist, but it wasn't racist of you to... Take a man's life. Take a man's life and make him pay and base that, I'm going to make this, let's just say this white man pay. Right. That... That was, I mean, it just is weird how it all came around, but he was, the irony of it strikes me. And yes, I mean, he's fighting for his life. He's trying, it's too bad he didn't give Billy Smith, Jack Smith, sorry, Billy Smith's dad, um, Jack Smith, the opportunity to also fight for his life. Right. I mean, he, Mr. Smith was doing everything to comply. Absolutely. The only thing he did was he pushed the silent alarm, which, by the way, he's supposed to. Exactly. He did and exactly. not only that, but said, okay, Bang messed up, right? Yes. Originally. He but, did, but it, but it was Bain an honest also, mistake. Of course. But he also, Bain also apprehended him. He did. Because he was headed out the door to God knows where. Exactly. With now two weapons. Right. And a bag full of money and nothing to lose. Right. So... I'm just saying it could have gone so much worse. This could have been a whole killing spree oh, up and down Main Street of Franklin. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I'm going to, I'll finish out this story and then I'll go back and talk a little bit more about Willie Turner. That I don't like to give him a platform or to talk about him at all because I don't think he deserves it, but it is part of the story. Anyway, after multiple appeals and attempted escape, I'll talk about that, and other shenanigans, Willie Turner was finally executed by lethal injection in June of 1995. 17 years it took. Well, now it takes a lot longer than that. Yeah. Jack Thanks. Smith's son was there to see his he father's was. killer take his last breath. Bless his heart. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Billy Smith took over the business that his yep. father worked so hard to build. Smith Jewelers is still a staple in downtown Franklin. They're in the same building they've always been in. Not much has changed, though. The store has been remodeled. The blood-stained carpet has been replaced. I can remember trying to find reasons to go in to see the blood-stained carpet when I was 9 and 10 years old. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure we were told by our dad, you need to stay out of that store. Yes, but we'd still go in. Yeah, well, of course. I mean... When did we listen to him? Exactly. A portrait of Jack Smith hangs on the wall. And if you look very close, just above the, ca- above the counter on the opposite wall, you'll see a bullet hole in the birchwood panel, a reminder of that horrible day back in 1978. It was definitely one that it's one of those tattooed on your brain. You know, you, you remember it. Um, it was such a, it just didn't make sense. I think it might have been the first time I ever tried to reconcile um, how can it be such a beautiful sunny day and everybody's just going about their business and it ends 
like this and such horrible man-made tragedy. Man-made, not yeah. a natural disaster. No. And I think that's the first time I was really aware of um, just the, the evilness of people. Right. And the sense, this whole thing that was just senseless and how they took that man, and that man was such a pillar of his community. He was an honest, respected businessman. Uh, his, I mean, he his family was shattered. I mean, this his son was eighteen, and he had two two older daughters. Yeah, and um, his wife was the head nurse at the hospital. He sang in the choir at the Methodist Church. He I mean, was he a, was just he a was just a good loved to golf. Americana, yeah. dude. Yep, businessman. And, and this um, Willie Turner, like just I said, was for, from the for area. incredibly <laughs> selfish reasons. <clears throat> thought that whatever is in that store. I should have. Well, the the history is very interesting with Willie Smith because uh, Willie Smith, for God. Oh, no. I'm going to be punished. Oh, no. She's always so on me about my I phone. Know. And here she didn't even silence hers. Like, usually I even have it on Do Not Disturb so you can't even hear it buzz. <laughs> and today, I just, I think it was the bourbon. Yeah, let's blame it on the bourbon. Yeah, because I can't figure out how to put it on Do Not Disturb. I'm oh, gonna goodness. Get there. Okay, I got it. So, Willie Turner was actually out on parole when he committed this crime. He had been to jail before for robbery and while he was in jail murder he murdered another person in jail why is he and that out? was in the 70s exactly that was in the 70s and something happened with his case where the state turned it over to a federal level and nobody was watching i think nobody was monitoring and he so it happened sometime in the 70s well this robbery took place in 1978 so he didn't spend very long, Very long in jail. Exactly. Wonder who he, wonder and then when he got out of jail... So he was in jail and killed a person. While he was in jail, he but, killed a person. But we don't know why he was in jail. He was in jail for another robbery. A robbery. Okay. And then decided to take another person's life. But then he got out of jail. So he couldn't have even spent but maybe six years in jail. Maybe. If that. Yeah. Doesn't seem like they added anything to any kind of a sentence. Right. So he gets... Well, he was... Let's see... He in the 70s, so he was denied parole in 72, 73, 74. I guess he must have gotten out in 75. He was paroled in 76, okay. and 78 is when he murdered Jack Smith. But when he got out of jail, he moved back in with his mama okay. in Franklin. And his mama called the police many times and said some, there is something wrong with him mentally because he would go into almost like a trance-like state and become very violent. He would chase people around with guns. And so the police were aware that he was not working with a full basket. Well, and, and at the time back then was not on a lot of people's radar. At the time, you you would call, if your loved one was having these types of issues, you would call the police and they would come get him and take him to a mental yeah. hospital. But that never happened. Somehow it fell through the cracks. Nobody ever came and got him. Right. I don't know if he was having some sort of a mental situation that it was never diagnosed like it because he and was fixed. Certainly coherent enough to get another man's gun to have conversations right. like he, you know, you would think in those trance like moments where he's violent and chasing people around with guns, it's hard to communicate with him. Right. Uh, he was communicating. Exactly. And then once he got to prison, 
he communicated just fine. He did a lot of interviews with the press. Oh. A lot of interviews with the press. And yeah. he, he really prided himself, you know, felt like he was like a handsome stallion, you he know, wasn't. type of person. Sorry. And he you, you ain't. talked about himself as being very brilliant, very smart, because he orchestrated this whole big breakout <laughs> of these inmates in Mecklenburg County. What year was that? Do you remember? I can't remember what year it I was. was still in, I was still in high school, so, and I graduated in 83. So it must have been so, right around there because I remember. And he went to jail when for this Seventy-eight. Murder? Yeah, so it didn't or take 79, him. I think he didn't take him long to come up with this brilliant no jail. And break. I can remember it very well because um, some of the, the people that escaped. I remember I was babysitting, and I got a call from I don't remember if it was mom or the Brantleys who I was babysitting for just to tell me that, that these prisoners had escaped. And to make sure all the doors and windows were locked. And I was terrified. Yeah. Terrified because this was house was right next too, to a field. Because we were out drinking and <laughs> and it was You dark. were not terrified. <laughs> you were drunk. And I wasn't drunk. I was just drinking. And I'm just saying a lot of people were like, you know, we got to, there's safety in numbers and we got to stick together. And nobody goes home like by themselves. Everybody, right. you know, everybody needs to buddy up and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So. I was real scared. I'm sure you of were. Those Briley brothers. You were looking for somebody to buddy up with. <laughs> <laughs> I probably buddied up with somebody. Probably, probably so. But yeah, it was the Briley brothers. Briley brothers. Yeah, and they had done. They had gone on a spree shooting in Richmond, Virginia. That's why they were. And this was a maximum security jail where they housed inmates on death row. Right. So yeah. maybe they should have tightened up that security a little bit. It was maximum. Know. It took, them, and it, took them a, uh, it took him a minute to get those boys back really in jail. It really did. But here's the thing with, with Willie Turner. <laughs> he decides, okay, I had this opportunity. They were going to take a nurse hostage. Right. He decided to talk them out of taking that, according to him, to not take the nurse hostage and to just go. Right. And he actually stayed behind and did not break out, even though he was the mastermind. Right. And so he says, I saved this woman's life. And then he goes to court and says, because I saved this woman's life, who was a nurse working at this prison, which, right. by the way, you saved her life from yourself. Right. <laughs> and I didn't break out of jail, even though I masterminded the whole thing. And two incredibly dangerous brothers are on the run. I think that I shouldn't die by the death penalty. I should just get it re reversed or right. whatever. I want. I want life. Right. And the and the courts laughed at him. They sure did. And said, "You've got to be kidding me! Like, <laughs> exactly. are you serious? You're still going to die?" Right. Yeah. And I mean, it went through. This went. He actually, believe it or not won one of his appeals and his case went back to trial in 1987 I think it was he was retried and reconvicted and resentenced to the death penalty still to the death penalty exactly yeah. so, so you're not fooling us he was when I say there were shenanigans I mean there were shenanigans but uh, that which is unfortunate for the Smith family because they waited a long time for yeah. Willie Turner to get what was due him. <sighs> and it um, it shouldn't have taken as long as it did. No, and he was in the newspapers all the time, and yeah. he was on the news all the time. So he and was kind of notorious. And that Smith family had to keep watching him just 
and figure out how to pick up the pieces and continue. But how do you pick up the pieces? So you pick up the pieces and, and today I'm having a good day and I'm right. moving forward and right. I turn on the TV and there's or I get jerk. the newspaper and there he freaking is on the front page right. once again spouting about how he's a great guy and everybody is racist against him and that's the only reason why he's in the place where he is. Right. So I have a hard time with people like that. I, I mean, here's my thing. Go to prison, accept your fate, face what you did, and shut your mouth. Right. Just shut it. Exactly. Shh. Enough. Enough. No more interviews. And shame on the press for even giving him the time I just, today. I'm really sad that they entertained it. Yeah. His last, the last little punch in the stomach for the Smith family, I think. And black eye for the prison system is after he died on death row, they went and cleaned out his cell, and in his cell, he had a typewriter. Why? Why does he get a typewriter I on death row? I don't know. What I, the? I don't know what flip. the rules are about what you can and well, what you can't Well, I'm just have. saying that's dumb, because those keys can be used as a weapon. I They're guess. metal. Exactly. Whatever it was, they opened up the typewriter and found a pistol in it. So he had a gun with him right there in his jail cell. I guess he felt like maybe that I'm sure he thought, too, well, I'm not going to use it, so I'm going to just go straight to heaven. Right. Anyway. Yeah, that's another. The nice thing about it is that is that Billy Smith now owns and operates that store with his wife. You know, his family has moved on and yeah. and he's taken over his father's business and done a great job with it. It's been a flourishing, and successful business, continues which to is bring, a nod to his father absolutely. and a nod to the, the boy man that was raised by his and father. And the community that embraced that family. Absolutely supported them. And continue. And, so uh, and so that's many the nice ways. part about living in a small town, I think. Yeah. One, I of, think the so good, too. one of the good things. That, they rally. They really rally behind yeah. people that are justifiably in need of rallying. Yeah. So that is the story of Jack Smith. Wow. And what happened to him Thank in you, Shana. 1978. That was well told. Thank you. I yes. appreciate that. Well told. Now give me some cake. R.I.P. Yes. Indeed. Jack Smith. But not Willie <laughs> not Turner. Not Willie Turner. Mm -mm. We hope you're burning. We hope you are U.I.P. Unresting. In Unresting peace. in peace. That's and right. No peace. U-I-N-P. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the we've got oh whoa. Wow, she she's went. not even standing up straight anymore. Okay, so we have um about twelve to fifteen minutes on the cake and then it has to completely cool and then I have to do the icing. Perfect. Perfect. So, so, let's so we'll just take pause. a little pause and maybe we'll do some housekeeping situation i'm not cleaning your house but you know we can just do some stuff and then we'll come back you can do some stuff i'm gonna sit right here and wait dang girl okay <laughs> i'm back i mean no no we'll be back we'll be back not bye bye come back okay we're back we're back there's been all kinds of activity in the kitchen Things are cooling. Yeah. My mouth is watering, but I'm not yet allowed to eat it. So not yet. Whatever. No, the cakes, when I flipped them out, they were steaming. Oh, for whatever reason, we have moved ourselves over to the table and not brought the microphone. I know, but I wonder if it's okay. Uh, no. No. All right. Well, let's uh, take a pause and grab that mic. Okay. I think folks will be able to hear us a little better now. Okay. So let me just tell you, um, while the cakes were finishing up cooking and cooling well kind of cooling i did the icing and you make caramel with sugar and water mm -hmm. on the stove i took a picture of sugar and water oh, oh okay mm -hmm. right right 
And then I took a picture of it as I pulled it off mm -hmm. the heat and then what it looked like after a minute off the heat because the trick is you pull it before it's the right color. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because if not, it gets way too dark. Mm -hmm. And then that had to cool for a little bit and I didn't let it cool quite as long as I should have. So I ran into an issue, but I overcame it. Then I added heavy cream and bourbon to it mm -hmm. and I whisked that. But because I had let it not, I had let it cool. I don't know what I did wrong. I don't know if I didn't let it cool enough or if it cooled too much. Whatever happened, it crystallized at the bottom and it got all gunky. Oh. So then I just returned it to the burner where I had just turned off the heat but didn't turn the heat on uh -huh. and kept whisking until right. that kind of melted off. Oh, good. And then I took a picture of what that looked like so people could see, like, the color. And... Then I made the icing, which is pretty much heaven. It's cream cheese and butter. <laughs> it is, so you do cream cheese and butter, and then you pour in your caramel mix with the cream and the bourbon in it. Mm. You keep whipping, and you, no, before the caramel, you add five cups mm -hmm. of powdered sugar one at a time. Right. And then you add that. And the last thing that you do is you add a teaspoon of Kilo vanilla. Nice. If you don't have Kilo vanilla, you can't make the cake. You cannot. You can't make it. So you order only, your Kilo Vanilla. Only you, use Kilo yeah. Vanilla. And so. Kilo Vanilla went into the actual cake as well. Yeah. So, and the icing and the cake. So there's Kilo Vanilla. And if you don't have it, don't even bother asking us for the recipe because you can't make it. That's right. Because it takes Kilo Vanilla. Gotta have it. Okay. So now that's all waiting for the cakes to cool so that I can do the icing. Right. Can I request this for Thanksgiving? I don't see why not, although the Italian cherry pound cake has already been requested. But that's more of a breakfast dish. That's true. It's not a It's been requested it's by two houses, right. so I'm not sure how that's going to work. Looks like a lot of work on my part. And then this, I mean, I think this banana cake is going to be a huge hit because it smells so good. And I'm not even a big banana dessert person. Right. Yeah. But this... I guess it's the bourbon. It's the liquor. When you, <laughs> when you do the bananas and the liquor, then yeah. you got a Maybe winner. I would eat plain Cheerios with bananas and bourbon. Yes. Because I don't like plain Cheerios with just bananas. I do. I know you do, but I, I don't like I don't, that. I'm not a big fan of milk. I don't like to put milk on my cereal. Listen, if are we saying we're starting a new movement? I think we're doing bourbon with cereal. Bourbon -arial? A bourbon -arial. That sounds like a, a venereal disease. <laughs> Burial. 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 I'm going to have burial. Like Sarah yes. used to say, she was having burial for burial. breakfast right. in college. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's burial. a new movement. Bur burial. Burial. No, bur not having burial. a burial. Bur cereal. Bourbon. Okay, maybe we should just abandon this yeah. and just say splash a little bourbon instead of milk on your, or with milk. I don't care what you do. Just put some bourbon in your cereal. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So while that's cooling, do you have a story to tell? I have a story. Okay. I have such a story. It is going to be maybe a little long. Bear with me. It is a story that has a really personal interest for me, especially. It is from our home area, not from actually from Franklin, but it's from the county that we're from. Right. And it happened back when I was in high school. So... I'm just going to start. I was in grade school. You were in grade school. I was in high school. Well, you were in middle school. Oh, middle school. Right. Mm -hmm. As opposed to grade Elementary school. school. Elementary. I'm not that much younger. 
it was my junior year in high school. So four years behind me, whatever that was, sixth grade? Right. No. Junior year? No. Junior year. You know what? I'm tired already. <laughs> so I don't care. I really don't care. Okay, here we go. I'm going to talk about Teresa Bricky Brantley, also known as Terry. Terry was born August 27, 1957. She was a native of Pulaski, Virginia, mm. which is kind of not very far from Radford, Virginia. Right. So, as a matter of fact, she graduated from Radford College. She had a degree in recreation administration. And she also was a member of the college band when she was in school. Nice. Terry had a brother named Robin Bricky uh -huh. and a sister named Amanda Siegel. Uh -huh. I think Amanda was from a different mayor, like from a different marriage. marriage. Right. Her mother's maiden name was Siegel. Okay. Terry was married to Mark Brantley. She was 24 years old and was an active member of her church. She was the director of the Youth of Christ Ambassador Group. Nice. I think she was living in the Wakefield-Windsor area at the time. And in June of 1982, she was working as a something called a rural relief mail carrier. Oh. And what that means is these people were on call. They were non-career positions. They were on call for, for when full-timers were out sick or on vacation. Right. She was filling in for a lady, I think, that was on maternity leave, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. She had been doing working about three months or so, and she had been working in the area of Sedley, Virginia. Right. That's where our area comes in. <laughs> so, Terry's life ended abruptly on the afternoon of June 2nd, 1982, on the ground outside of her car in a pool of her own blood with over 30 stabs and slices, mm. including a four inch deep, five inch long gash to her throat. Wow. So now I'm going to talk about a young man named Rodney Scott Sims. Rodney Scott, it's confusing because when I first knew him, he was Rodney, and at some point in high school, he decided to go by Scott. So I, I try to call him Scott. <laughs> he was born September 28, 1964. Mm -hmm. His parents were Sidney and Emily Sims. He had a younger brother named Lance, and they lived in Ivor, Virginia. So I'm going to talk about Scott a little bit. Okay. I started going to Southampton Academy in the fifth grade. Scott was in my class. Yes. At that time, Rodney. Gotcha. Rodney Sims. Um, was kind of a typical boy, typical kid growing up, pretty nice, always nice to me. He, and his personality came across as kind of very shy, mm -hmm. most of the time kind of humorous. He liked to joke around, especially with the guys. So did you meet him when you first started at the academy? Well, I mean, I, he was in my class. When, okay, so you started out and he was in your class yep. that first year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I think he was <clears throat> he was at the academy before I was. Yeah. So he was already there. So he was in my class. And you got to remember, our classes were teeny tiny. Like they were. Like 30-some people. Right. So, of course, I knew him. He knew me. We had classes together, everything. So, he was nice. He was a nice guy. I considered him a friend, especially by the time we were in high school. Mm -hmm. 
I considered him kind of a buddy, you know, but yeah. not somebody that I ever went to his house or like hung out with. I right. didn't hang out with. But it's hard not to have friends that you connect with when you spend most of your day five days a week. Yeah, and it's a class of thirty them. some people, exactly. so you're, we're all friends. And you're there from the beginning yeah. all the way through. So we're all friends. So by the time we were in high school, I considered him a friend. We sat together in plenty of classes because I gravitated towards the back of the room in class. Right. And I gravitated towards the not so studious people. We had highly intelligent people in our class. I gravitated away from them, even though I was in their friend group in class. I didn't sit with them because I always felt intimidated. Like I would never be smart enough to hang out with them in class. Right. So I gra I usually was towards the back of the room, which is where a bunch of the guys were and they were always cutting up and I was right in there with them. Maybe not cutting up, but always laughing. <laughs> so allegedly during football practice, Rodney Scott threatened to kill one of his teammates. Was this during your junior year? I think it was before then. Okay. I think it was maybe our sophomore year is what I'm thinking. Okay. Because I want to say he was still on JV. Oh, okay. When this happened. So later, I think maybe our 10th grade year, there was an incident where he and a group of boys were in the library. They were cutting up. I'm pretty sure they were looking at some boobies in the National Geographic magazines because that's Did what they like. Did you say boobies? I said boobies. <laughs> <laughs> they were looking at some boobies. And I'm sure they were cutting up and being stupid. And the librarian had, of course, zero patience for that, which I understand now. Right. And she actually made them leave the library. She kicked them out of the library. Right. I'm sure they probably had to go talk to either one of the football coaches or one of, or the principal, somebody. I'm sure there was some interaction with a male at that point that said, you knuckleheads right. need to knock it off. Right. So that evening, this is during basketball season, our, the librarian happened to be our cheerleading coach. Yes. And me being the all-star cheerleader. <laughs> anyway, we were all at the basketball game. And so when that librarian and her family returned home that night from the basketball game, something had gone terribly wrong in her yard. Oh. And in her front yard and in her backyard, every plant, every small tree, every medium-sized tree, every bush, every anything was planted, any flower, any hedges, whatever, it had been chopped. Mm. Chopped completely down. Her yard looked like like a war zone. And some boys had gone in to her yard while we were at the basketball game and done, had done this as payback for her kicking them out. Oh. Rodney Scott Sims was part of this group. Okay. It is my understanding that they used machetes, but it was torn up. I think they had actually driven their trucks through her yard. Oh, it was, wow. it, there was so much damage. And they knew she wouldn't be there, that she would be at the yeah, game. Yeah, everybody right? was going to be at the game, including her. So mm -hmm. nobody was home. Thank goodness they didn't keep their dog outside. I know. I know they had two dogs back then. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The way this was handled at Southampton Academy was that nothing happened. The librarian wanted them punished, right. of course. Right. And the headmaster said, 
It was not done on school property. It was not done during school hours. Right. I'm out. I don't know what happened to them personally. I don't know if their parents punished them or not. Right. But I know that the school did not. Right. And as far as we know, the police did not. As far as I know, the police didn't either. Right. There was also another incident, probably around our 10th grade, maybe beginning of our junior year, where Rodney, at at night, had gone, um, he lived in a very rural area, he had gotten on the highway in his dad's Crown Victoria car that was white, Mm -hmm. and he was flashing his lights and trying to pull cars over in the middle of the night. Oh, my. He actually, two women who were nurses, they were on the way home from their shift at a hospital. Uh They actually thought he was a police officer and pulled over. Oh, wow. When he came to their window, the lady, thank God, cracked her window maybe four inches, maybe six inches at the most, did not roll it all the way down, especially Mm -hmm. when she sees this young kid like it's not a blitz this is a young kid clearly not not in uniform and he was a he was kind of a short kid so it's not like i mean he looked like a grown man there was no way there was no mistake in it i don't think he had facial hair oh my goodness so when she saw him she was suspicious and when he came to the car he said something uh that was sexually aggressive and when she denied his advances he then took a hunting knife and went through the window and tried to stab her. Oh, gosh. He did cut through part of her clothing and scratched her skin. But thank God there was nothing serious. She floored it. Right. And then she was able to get his license thank plate. Thank you. Yeah, license well. <laughs> plate. As, as she sped off, he then sped off, too, and went around her. Of course, at this point, she's probably thinking, he's probably going to block me in. He sped away. Right. She was, the other, the passenger was able to get the license plate. They reported it to the police. Okay. This was thrown out of court because of lack of evidence for whatever wow. reason. So, nothing ever happened to him now, on this incident. to your knowledge, was anybody at the school notified of what happened? At that point, I don't know. Right. But you were never made aware of it. I was. We were never made aware of it. We were not aware of it until later. Right. But the people that told us this was a staff member at the school. Right. So I don't know how the school would not have known. Right. If the if the staff member knew, why why would they have that knowledge and not the rest of the school? Right. Unless though. Um, Unless it came to light afterwards. If if I recall correctly, Rodney's, uh, Scott's mother worked as a bus driver for the school. I do believe she did. Mm -hmm. So maybe, just maybe it could have come that way, but who knows. But so what you're saying is nobody at the school was informed that this aggression was taking place. Certainly none of the students. Now, we all knew about the incident with the librarian. Right. We all knew about it. Of course. And we knew that he did it. I mean, he was... He didn't have a problem telling you he did it. Right. But none of it was ever handled in a way that was um, as a warning to anybody or anything. It was more of a boys will be boys That's exactly what it was seen as, boys will be boys. Wow. So, but at that time, I still saw him as just a goofy, a little bit weird, shy kid that, that maybe, you know, was a follower and not a, 
You know what I'm saying? Not a leader, right. Not a leader, leader. just kind of got caught up in something. And then, right. you know, I was like, oh, you know. But, I mean, still, it was serious. Yeah. So. But even in, when you're in high school, as a peer, you don't realize how serious. Not at all. You don't. You don't see the forest just, for the trees. No, no, not at that age. Mm -mm. No. And, and if nothing happened to them, then I figured it must not have been that big of a deal. I know that the librarian was incredibly upset. And I don't blame her. Of course. She was probably angry, if not fearful, right. at that point. Right. So I do get that. And I, and I understood it at that time. But somehow I just separated it. Like, oh, she's really mad that this happened. And this guy is just a goofball. Right. So I didn't really see it as an aggression. Yeah. More than he's just stupid. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so around June of 1982, we were in exams. During that time, we were in exams before school got out, and we would do half days right. at yeah. school. On June 2nd, we I was supposed to meet with Rodney Scott at the library in Cortland, Virginia, which would be halfway between our houses, kind of. Right. And in Virginia back then, we were in school until the, you know, First or second week of June, but we didn't start school until September, so we yep. went to June. These days, kids are out, you know, about May. It's crazy, it's insane, right? So we so, still and we didn't have days for right. our exams. Right. We would have um, two exams in the morning and get out by like eleven or twelve. Right. So we had our geometry exam on the third. So on the second, because we sat behind, he sat behind me in geometry class. And we had been doing like review and all that kind of stuff. And I had been taking a lot of notes. He was like, hey, let's, can we get together and study? And I was like, absolutely. Cause I mean, he's just a friend of mine. And so I was like, I'll bring my notes. You bring your notes and we'll study and we're going to ace this exam. And so that was the plan until the very end of school that day when I decided that my priority was not the geometry exam. It was going and laying out in the sun by the country club pool. Of course. Because that's where my priorities always exactly. were. Exactly. <laughs> so I tell him at the end of school, hey, Rodney, Scott, whatever your name is, I'm not going to study for geometry until late tonight. I'm not meeting you. See you later. Bye. Right. Okay. And off he went. And off he went. And he was like, okay, bye. That was it. Right. The next morning, my dad comes in and wakes me up in the morning, which he did most mornings. And he sat down on my bed, which he hardly ever did. And he said, I have something I need to tell you, which he never did. Right. What he told me was that afternoon of June 2nd, that a lady had been murdered in Ivor, a mail carrier, and that my friend Scott had been arrested for the murder. Wow. And I immediately told dad, there is no way that guy would ever murder anybody because he is so shy. He doesn't say boo to anybody. Right. And I was like, there's no way, there's no way this is a mistake. I don't believe it. And he said, well, I wanted to tell you because I didn't want to hear, I didn't want you to hear it on the radio on the way to school. Cause right. I was in a carpool at that time driving back and forth. And I was still taking the darn school bus. Yeah, well, too bad. <laughs> so I get to school. Well, I get into the car and we start talking and they had all heard it. Both of these girls had heard it on the radio, too. Oh. I was like, God, there is no way. We're going to get to school, and he's probably at school. This is a mistake. They've got it wrong, whatever. Right. Get to school. There's an announcement 
not over the loudspeaker, but in class, there's this announcement that says, you might notice that Scott's not here. There's been an incident. He's been arrested. We won't talk about it anymore. Uh, take out your pencils. It's time for a oh geometry God. exam. That is mind-boggling. Isn't that mind-blowing? They would shut a school down now and have grief counselors. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, trauma counselors, everything. And we were just expected to go on with the rest of our day and the next day and school I think got out probably on the 5th probably like not too like maybe three days later right we never talked about it at school there was no assembly there was no. nothing it we just didn't talk about no, it no I remember and when an adult said to you we won't talk about this anymore you it. didn't talk about didn't, it anymore you did not yeah. it was not talked about at school I remember very yeah. vividly that there was it's very upsetting no talk it no, was the, the end take your exam and then Go home and study for the next one. That was it. So, of course, we're all like, what the hell? Like, we're wondering, like, what, what is happened? going on? So, some of the, most of the girls were, we were visibly upset. We were shaken. We were like, there's no way this happened. Most of the boys were, I could see how that happened. Oh, wow. And I was like, are we talking about the same person? That's how crazy it was. But they knew a different person. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to read you the witness statements from the people who actually witnessed this murder. Oh, wow. They were witnesses. Witnesses. Okay. So we have Frank Turner and Raylan Johnson. They were at the Beulah Land Church located in Ivor down a dirt road. Mm -hmm. um, kind of at an intersection there at, at a dirt road and a paved road. Okay. Okay. Frank and Raylan saw a white male passenger sitting right next to the... Wait, nope, hold on. First, <laughs> they saw a blue Plymouth with wood grain on the side pass by them and then return approximately five minutes later. Okay. Raylan saw a white male passenger sitting right next to the driver. So when they first saw the, the car, there was the driver. Okay. When it came back, it had two people in it. Okay. That second person was sitting right next to, not in the passenger seat. See, back then we had bench seats. Right. And he would have been sitting right in the middle next to her. Oh, I see. Yep. He noticed he was right in the middle next to her, you know, five minutes later. So, and they saw the driver and passenger physically fighting. Oh, wow. The car turned into the parking lot of the church and hit the pickup truck in the rear where Turner and Johnson were sitting. Oh, wow. Turner and Johnson saw the driver fall out of the driver's side of the Blue Plymouth, and the male passenger came out of the driver's door behind the driver, and the passenger, a white male with light curly hair, picked her up, stabbed her in the stomach and in the chest with a big, shiny knife. Oh. Turner and Johnson then saw the white male run towards the woods and then returned back to the blue, blue Plymouth, picked up his white cap, oh. and then turned around and ran again. Oh. Now, about this time, Curtis Basin passed the Sims residence um, around 2.35 in the afternoon. He looked at his watch because Terry Brantley, the mail carrier, normally came to his house at 2, and she was late. Oh. So, Faison stated that he saw Terry back into the Sims driveway, he then saw a white male with blonde curly hair on the passenger side at that time, and he saw Brantley, the Brantley vehicle leave the Sims residence and go towards the church. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Otis Johnson 
had also been working at the church with Frank and Raylan, and he had gone down the dirt road and into the woods to relieve himself. Mm-hmm. Otis Johnson was returning to the church, and his brother Raylan told him someone had been stabbed, and he said the white man ran in the woods. Otis himself ran into the woods and saw a white male running. While Otis was in the woods, he was running so hard he ran right out of his shoes. Oh, Otis. And this was near the point where he saw the white man, the white male running through the woods. Okay. Okay. Approximately, uh, I don't know why, whoever wrote this, they wrote it in such a weird order, but the sheriff's department received a call at three o'clock that afternoon that the rescue squad was needed at the Beulah Land Church because there had been a staffing. Okay. Now, the detective, the deputy sheriff, David Price, he arrived at 310 at the church and found Teresa Brantley's body laying next to her blue Plymouth. He also saw Raylan and Frank and Otis at the church, and the deputy stated that he had gone by the since he had stopped at Sydney Sims residence and talked to Scott and asked Scott, did you see anybody in the field run-in that was strange. And, of course, Scott said, no, I, I didn't, didn't see anybody. anybody. Wow. And then he went on to the church. So, um, Lee Rayford from the Correctional Center was called, and he brought his bloodhound. Okay. And from there, so he was called to the scene. He got there at 4 o'clock, Mr. Rayford and the bloodhounds, and the investigator by now, and Otis Johnson. So, got a parade of people and the dog. Yeah went to the point where Otis had lost his shoes and saw the white man, white male running through the woods. The bloodhounds then started tracking through the woods, went through the woods to the backyard and stopped right at the Sims residence. Kind of love a bloodhound. Yep. I love them. They arrived at, at Sydney Sims, that's Scott's dad, at five o'clock. And then Sheriff. Oh, wow. So they started out at 310. He got to the scene, and it wasn't until two hours later. No, he he arrived at four oh, okay. with his bloodhound. Right, the guy with the so, bloodhound. So yeah, the initial it took officer him about got an there hour. at 3.10. He got there at four, and then about an hour later. Yeah. So, got it. And then Sheriff R.H. Brooks, who was the sheriff at the time, mm-hmm. he arrived at the Sims residence a few minutes before the arrival of the bloodhounds. Oh. And the sheriff stated that at that time, Scott was in the backyard near the dog pen. He was wearing jeans, but no shirt. Mm. There was a white T-shirt on the well near the dog pen, and Sheriff Brooks took it into his possession because it had blood on it. The investigator observed Scott Sims in the backyard of his residence talking to the sheriff. Scott had a fresh cut at the base of his right index finger and several scratches going up his right side. Frank Turner was given a 1982 edition of the Southampton Academy yearbook uh-huh. for the purpose of viewing student photographs. And at 6.54, Frank Turner was able to ID the photo of Scott Sims as being the white male he saw stab the woman who was driving the blue Plymouth. Wow. Curtis Faison was also given a Southampton Academy yearbook for the purpose to see photographs of students. Right. And at 6.59 p.m., Curtis Faison picked Scott Sims from the yearbook as being the passenger in Terry Brantley's car when they passed, when he passed the Sims residence and saw her car. So he has been ID'd by three people. The bloodhounds have tracked him to his home. He has fresh scratches. He has blood on his shirt. 
this doesn't look good. No. So those are the witness statements. I'm going to tell you what the autopsy found. The autopsy found of Terry Brantley, defensive wounds on her hand, one went all the way through. Oh, God. Over 30 slices and stabs. He surmised that it was a knife was used that had ja a jagged edge and then a notch. Mm. And January. Some sort of a hunting type knife. Exactly. That hunting type knife was found in a search warrant um, at the residence. It was found in a tackle box mm. underneath Scott's bed. Oh. So. He done it. Okay. <laughs> January of 1983, a grand jury indicted him for first degree murder and kidnapping. First degree meeting, there was premeditation. Right. The premeditation is due to, during their investigation, they figured, they found out through different interviews that um, he had, he was sexually fixated on Miss Brantley. I wonder if they did interviews with any of your classmates. I don't know. Right. I don't know because we didn't talk Nobody about it. Nobody talked about it. We didn't talk about it. And as a matter of fact, we still don't talk about it. I'm the only one that brings it up when I'm with my friends. Right. And I know they probably think I'm obsessive, which I am. <laughs> and and I will say that for 20-some years, 30 years, I never talked about it because I had a lot of guilt about right. the fact that I had canceled my plans with Scott. Right. I thought if I hadn't canceled those plans, that lady would still be alive. And I felt very guilty about it. And I was very traumatized because I, I just wanted to ask him, would you have done that to me? Right. Would you have done that to me? Yeah, he would have. And I had a hard time with that because he was my friend. Right. And I was, I was very conflicted about that. Like, and I was still at this point... There's a lot on the news. There's a lot in the papers. Daddy wouldn't let me read the papers. Right. He didn't want me watching the news about it. He didn't want me listening to it. He didn't want me exposed to it. Sure. I mean, it was gruesome. Of course. And it, it had this sexual deviant twist to it that yeah. was odd yeah. at best. And so um, I didn't talk about it. And I just carried that. I just carried that guilt and I didn't want to talk about it because I didn't want anybody to, to agree with me and say, yeah, you're right. If it weren't for you, this wouldn't have happened. Right. So as a young kid, I just stuffed it. Right. Stuffed yeah. it. So July of 1983, Scott is arraigned. He pleads not guilty to both charges. Oh. He also, so at that time, defense counsel motions for first degree murder to be reduced to second degree. And the judge overrules it. He also moves to have the abduction charge dropped. What? He overrules it. And at that time, Scott um, waived his right to a jury trial. Mm. So now it's just going to be heard by a judge. Right. So in November of 1983, the defense asks the judge to grant a psychological evaluation of Scott by a Dr. Peter Powell, of Newport News, Virginia. The judge grants it and orders transport of Scott from Suffolk to Newport News. Okay. Dr. Powell meets with Scott in December of 83 to determine if Scott is competent enough to stand trial and to determine if Scott was legally insane at the time of the offense. Right. So 
the sentence, so I'm going to jump to the sentencing hearing because we both know that he's guilty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to admit he's guilty. He did it. At the sentencing hearing, Dr. Powell's report is noted. He actually testifies at the sentencing hearing, and this is part of the court transcript. At the time that he met with Scott, Scott was not psychotic, not hallucinatory, and he was realistic. So he wasn't delusional. Right. There was no evidence of a deep-seated, any deep-seated problems as far as psychotic symptoms. Right. During the exam, his reactions were very angry to isolated and withdrawn. Hmm. He denied accessing his own memory to the event. Oh. So Scott said, don't remember it. Right. Don't remember. Not talking about it. Right. He took the same stand that everybody else in the community took. Exactly. We're not, I mean, we're not, we're not talking, talking about, about this. this. We will never speak of this again. So um, Dr. Powell noted that, he, that Scott had substantial difficulties um, containing his sexual impulses. He was extremely emotionally immature, and when confronted with um, with the crime during the session, he had a rage-like reaction that became threatening to the doctor. Mm. The doctor also surmised um, that Scott had committed this offense probably while engaging in forcible rape. Oh, gosh. Yes. So I'm just going to tell you, this is a guy who... When we were assembling, constructing for our junior prom, because it was our job as the junior class that you build the prom set, right? Right. So we constructed, and we we were in this rural area in this where peanut warehouse yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. Was where we would do it because it was big. You know, we had these huge murals. We did. I mean, when we and we built we like transformed bridges transformed. and like yes, no, and so. That's, we needed these spaces, and we would go after school to, you know, to work on the stuff, and it's like February, March, so it gets dark early. Right. And we would go, we'd have to park behind the warehouse in this field, and then um, with no lights. So afterwards, Scott, every time he worked with me, he would walk me to my car to make sure I got to my car safely and right. locked at the door. Yeah. Like he was, that's the kind of person that he was. So now you're telling me that he's a sexual predator. Oof, Lordy me. Right. And that he has had access to me and several other girls alone in the dark. Right. Several times. Several, several times. Wow. Even though Scott claimed that he had no memory of the event, he did remember Everything just prior into and right after the oh, event. So I'm saying event like it was like a steak dinner, but right. it was not. <laughs> so when challenged about his lack of memory, Scott became very aggressive towards the doctor. Oh. And then went straight back into a very passive state. Oh. So he was like, don't push me on it. I'm not talking about it. If you do, I'm going to threaten you. Right. And then when the doctor backed off, he went into being kind of withdrawn and passive and quiet. Right. Yeah, quiet. So the doctor noted that during the crime, Scott was in a state of absolute rage. He defined that as having no control over oneself whatsoever. And he was fully capable at that time of great bodily harm to the person that he was enraged at. I'm paraphrasing because, you know, my grammar is not like that doctor's. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, he would not have considered right or wrong. Right. And he would not have had conscious decision-making capabilities. 
So, he was just on autopilot. Right. He was an animal. But, does that make him insane? No, not at all. No. Um, he did not meet the criteria for insanity, but he met the criteria for being in a total loss of control. Right. So, Scott cannot separate, according to the doctor, he cannot separate sexual feelings from aggression, which is part of his emotional immaturity. Ah. When he is... Because he, at the time, he's 17 or 18? 17. 17. When he commits this crime. He would have been 18 that September, and this was done in the beginning of June. Wow. Um, When rejected, the aggression becomes rage, Mm. and... In his attempt to thwart the rejection, he uses violence in order to obtain sexual gratification. Wow. He does not anticipate consequences for his behavior. He doesn't think he's going to get in trouble for it. It's almost like if he hadn't, that he, it almost reminds me of uh, a criminal that would have been a serial rapist and a murderer, like a serial killer, even. Without question. Right. And he said, he was a ticking time bomb. The doctor said that. The doctor said that. Right. And the fact that he was fixated on this girl for sexual gratifications. Now, let me just say, this girl, she was a grown woman, right. 24 years old, married. married. Scott is this little pipsqueak of a 17-year-old. How did he think he, she was ever going to accept his sexual advances? It doesn't sound like, where like is he your was brain? able, but it doesn't sound like he was able to make the distinction between From what, what I understand, he, he what had a couple of different fixations throughout high school, but he did not act on them. But from what I've been told by our classmates, male classmates, the way that he would refer to those girls or refer to what he wanted from those girls and how he was going to get it was not normal. Right. They all knew that. Not normal. But nobody said a word. No. Nobody said a word. No. So. Put, because I'm sure as friends, they didn't think no. he's going to do it. He's just no. talking a big talk. Yeah. Or know? that's just him. He's just weird. Weird. He's right. a weird guy. Right. And he just can't handle whatever. I mean, he's. I don't know. I'm sure there was a lot of locker room talk around it. Probably. But I can tell you that it did. A few people that I've talked to. It was a little unnerving. But for the people that had known him since probably kindergarten or even before then, yeah, it was just his personality, wow. and they just didn't think that he would that he would ever act on it. He was just talking a big story. Wow, right. So, and I, I mean, I get it. I can understand that being, you know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old. You don't think somebody's going to do something right like that. I mean, it's not even in your head. And back then, that's just not the way people thought. These yeah. days. It'd be we've like, got right yeah, we've it. got we've got true crime documentaries everywhere exactly. and people are all over it. We can see all the red flags now. But back then, it's just not how it was, and it was chalked up to boys will be boys. Right. This is how boys act. He'll he'll grow out of it, he'll get over it, all that kind of crap. So um boys will be boys. I know. I'm so glad that mentality is gone. It is for the most part. I don't think it's completely gone yet, but I think it's up to parents of young boys to make sure that you you don't accept that for behavior. Right. That's my thing. As far as remorse goes, the doctor says Scott has no remorse. He will not admit to remembering or even um talking about what he did. So he can't have remorse for it if he won't talk about exactly. it. Exactly. 
But what he does have remorse for is the impact of his actions on his family. The doctor says he probably saw Terry as an object right. of gratification. Right. Um, like you and I would look at a milkshake. Or cake. Or some cake. Or, or a that cake, banana cake. That banana the cake. Or some it. bourbon. Or a cookie. Or a lifesaver. Right. Anything. <laughs> or some... He didn't see her as human, but he can see his family as human. Right. So, Dr. Powell testified that Scott is a danger to society. He will always be a danger to society. There is no... At that point, he did not know of any treatment, and he was asked about several different treatments and if that if that could help him and he said this is not going to help him right and until he admits that he did this yeah. and is remorseful you can't turn him around now he did say in young people when they commit this horrible violent thing right that, ha- that happens if they are willing to admit it if they're re- truly remorseful for it and carry guilt about it they can be absolutely reformed they can come back from that and he says in his report people do people can come back from this but as long as he is not willing to if he's got a wall up right he's never going to be able to be treated for this or get any type of therapy that's going to help him right nothing because he refuses to admit that he did it how about a lobotomy and he's they even asked him about the lobotomy and he said i don't know of a neurologist out there that would do a lobotomy on him for this because that's that was frontal lobe, and this is different. Right. So he said that treatment doesn't even fit what's going on with this wow. kid. He said he's a ticking time bomb. He does. He brings up, oh, love this. He brings up Scott's mask of sanity, mm. which we've heard in, in some true crime documentaries. Sure. yeah. And that is Scott's ability to walk around society and be able to hide the seriousness of his problems, the dark, violent personality that's brewing. And he acts out violently as a reaction to an event like sexual rejection. And then without thinking about it again, he just goes back to living his life, blocks it out. And then he thinks if I don't think about it or admit to doing it, then somehow magically it's going to go away. Right. And I'm not going to be punished for it. That's why he gets mad every time the doctor pushes him to remember. Are you sure you don't remember? How can you not remember? This is... This is pretty big stuff. And then he gets aggressive. That's his um, self-preservation coming out. Right. Saying, we're not going there. Right. We're not going there. Because I I have a mask of sanity. And the mask that I'm wearing today is I'm passive. Right. So if you start talking about this, I'm going to crack my mask. It's going to fall off. Did the doctor diagnose him with, like, bipolar or any mental disease at all? He did not. He just said he, he... He's, He's a ticking time, ticking bomb. time bomb. He is a danger to society. He will always be a danger to society, and he needs to not be in society. Wow. And that's really difficult to hear about a guy that I thought was my friend. I was going to say, I'm sure that it's been really difficult for you to research this information. It, it had a, It was difficult. Um, it's, it's had some triggers. There's been some triggers. Right. And it has taken me, you know, this is... This is why I am so interested in that psychology behind crime. Of course. This is what tripped that for me. It's what lit that fire for me. And yet with this podcast, we're what, a year and a half, almost two years in, and I'm just getting around to talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I know you've had the file for a while and we talked about. Yeah. I've had the file for a a year, over a year. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I've got all the court documents. I have the autopsy report. I have the I have everything. I have the um, crime scene photos. It is very triggering. It's very difficult. And and the thing that I feel the worst about is I don't know a lot about Terry because right. in my world it was all about Scott. Right, because she's the one live I know in our area, and mm-hmm. that's that's also no. part of a so small in town. Pulaski, you don't know right. a lot in about. her hometown, in in Wakefield and Windsor, and in Pulaski where she was from. Mm-hmm. It was a huge deal, I'm sure. absolutely a huge deal. I'm sure. But um, but those towns are even smaller. They're even smaller, and they're and they're removed. They're, they're rural, you know, they're, right? And they're quite a ways from sure. us. So um, you know, it just. I don't know. It, it, I just felt really badly that I didn't know a lot about her. I did a, as much research as I could. And the only thing I could find was um, a couple of obituaries. Right. And I pulled her information from there. Right. We've said that he's a ticking time bomb. And he, and he is capable of extreme violence, especially towards females for which he is seeking a sexual encounter. Right. So there are two letters that are entered into evidence in court. Oh, Okay. One is from the headmaster of Southampton Academy at the time, and one is from the football coach of Southampton Academy. Now, this is for the, the trial? Um, this was for the sentencing. The sentencing, okay. Mm-hmm. Pretty much what happened in the trial that wasn't a trial was all of the stuff was presented to the judge. He took his time, read through all the evidence, and came back and said, you're guilty. Right. So there was no... I didn't see any trial transcript where, like, oh, no, there, there was be. a their plea deal or yeah. anything like that. It just was, you're guilty, and that's the end of it. And there was no, do you have anything to say to the court? Because it was just the judge. Mm-hmm. There were no final words. I'm not sure what Scott would have said. So, anyway, these two letters from the headmaster and the football coach pretty much said, he's he while he is not the most student, studious student that we have, he certainly is just a typical boy. Wow. And that's what was entered in as on his benefit. Good heavens. To his benefit at sentencing. So he is sentenced to life plus 10 years. So life for the premeditated murder and 10 years for the abduction. Oh, okay. He died in prison at the age of 42. I didn't find out that he had died in prison until probably about five or six years after he had passed away. Right. I had always wanted, but you know me, I'm a chicken, but in my mind, you know, I'm a superhero. And I always wanted to go. uh, I can remember even being in college and coming back and talking to daddy about how I wanted to find out where Scott was because I wanted to go visit him in prison. And dad said, absolutely not. But I wanted to look at him and say, Scott, would you have done that to me? Would you have done that to me? Or if you had, if you had met with me, could, would you just have not done it ever? I don't know. I don't know that he would ever even talk to me or much less give me the truth. Because if he can't admit that he did anything, then he's probably not going to talk to me about it. Right. But you, but after, but I needed reading, closure. after reading all of the psychiatrist report. Now I know. Now you have closure. Now and you I know. also know from friends that I was not one of the objects of his desire at right. school. Right. That I was just a I was just a friend. I was just a buddy. I was not somebody that he looked at as I want to get with that girl. Because it's not personal. Because 
his aggression was toward the way we look at food. We're, and it, he had a we type. Want it. He had a certain type. And he had because a type, I know but the it was also she was an object. Right. She wasn't so it wasn't personal. It wasn't personal, but he had a type, a certain look of mm-hmm. a girl that he that he was attracted to. attracted to and fixated on and I didn't fit that bill. Thank goodness. I know. So happy. <laughs> so happy. I don't mind being not this object of sexual desire. <laughs> yes. So, oh God, I like that. So that is my story. That wow. is um that is a story that lives in my in the back of my brain all the time. I'm really glad that you told the story. I am too, because I feel like that things that stay in the dark get bigger and when you bring them out to the light, they shrink. Right. And I think that's therapeutic for me to talk about it and to read about it. And I don't know. Maybe one day I'll write a book about it. Maybe. But for now. I have a podcast about it. You can podcast about it. And, you know, food is very healing. I know there's cinnamon in this cake. That's, that's also very, very healing. healing. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we shouldn't just have a bite. Can we pause? Because I need you to cut it. Oh, Okay. <laughs> All right, we're back, and we each have a slice of this insanely incredible cake. And when you when you store this cake, if there's ever any left, you should store it in the refrigerator. I don't oh, think God. it's going to be even better cold. Mm. Oh, my God. Mm. That is a delicious cake, sugar. Holy moly. Very, very well done. Thank you so much. I am, this is a keeper. A keeper. I'm a keeper. You're a keeper. The cake is a keeper. <laughs> All right, guys, we have social media. Yeah. Come find us on Instagram or Twitter. My Twitter's blowing up. Oh, wow. So find us on either one. I mean, come also to join the fan page. Yeah, on Facebook. On Facebook. There's activity on all of them. Um, Sometimes it's all the same activity and sometimes it's different. So you can just follow us on all social media. You can also send us an email. Yes. Send us Put in your order for the Killa Vanilla. Yes, we've got some that... Um, we're shipping ship, it out. Yep, it's shipping tomorrow, so we're really excited about that one. That email address is murder.sugarcoated at gmail.com. And also, mm. well, you need to stay sweet and don't murder. Because if you kill people, we're going to talk about you. Yeah, we are. And as you can see, we'll talk a lot about you. Oh, yeah. we got a lot to say. Indeed. And guys, we just appreciate you. You know what you could do for us for our Christmas present, early Christmas present? Order some vanilla. Buy us a coffee. Buy us some coffees. We might use the coffee's money for bourbons. Bourbons. Yes, we could use it for (laughs) bourbons. Or we might use it, but I doubt it, for treats for trout. And also, go on whatever platform you listen to us on, especially if you listen on Apple subscribe rate and leave a review you can review each individual episode if you would like to you can give us five stars which we would really appreciate but that really does boost our presence and it helps us um, get seen by a lot of different people in a lot of different countries and i help exactly and y'all can be like oh i help them so we really appreciate it if y'all could just um follow us subscribe And rate, cut off from the bourbon. Yeah, rate and review. That's what we like from you. All right, that's it. All right, guys, love y'all so much, and we'll talk to y'all soon. Bye. Bye. This has been Sugar Coated Murder Podcast.
a deliciously entertaining true crime podcast. Like what you heard? You can always explore past episodes by visiting sugarcoatedpod.com. Don't forget to like our Facebook fan page and share with friends. Thanks for listening to Sugar Coated Murder Podcast. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.